0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. St. Paul is at once one of the most familiar literary voices and one of the most perplexing. An early convert to the Jesus movement within first century Judaism, Paul's letters have come to us as holy scriptures, canonical epistles whose teaching and whose proclamation have given shape to almost every variety of Christianity. For the scholarly community, Paul has been at times a proto-Augustinian, the inspiration for Protestant reformers, a guide through the thickets of religion into true relationship with God, and an apocalyptic seer calling for the faithful to ready themselves for a world to come. Here to help us sort through all of this is N.T. Wright, whose recent book, The Paul Debate, provides a compact and a rigorous engagement with some of the questions that continue to define Pauline studies. Thank you for coming on the show, Professor Wright.
1: Thank you very much,
0: good to be with you. We opened your book proposing that, although the church had not yet invented the term, St. Paul was doing something like theological education, not only in person when he visited this or that church, but through his letters. How can that framework, that educational framework at the outset of our conversation, help our listeners to think about your approach to Paul's letters.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the crucial thing is to realize that for Paul, theology, uh, what we call theology, he didn't use that word himself, is not simply a set of doctrines to be learned. It's a way of thinking, a way of prayerfully, scripturally thinking about God, about God's people, about God's future, and crucially for Paul... He really did believe that unless the whole church, that is all Christians, all followers of Jesus, are engaged in... Uh, struggling to think in this new way what he calls dramatically the mind of the Messiah, the mind of Christ unless all Christians are struggling to do that, then the church simply won't be what it ought to be. He goes on uh, letter after letter about how the church is supposed to be united, the church is supposed to be holy, but you can't do this just by telling people you should be united, you should be holy it'll only happen if all the people involved are struggling to think in a quite new way. And so when I say that Paul was teaching people to think Christianly, teaching them to uh, to, 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 to be, as it were, theologians, everybody, not just the teachers in the church, um, what I mean is that uh, he believed that with Jesus, a whole new world had come into being, uh, a world which was engaged with the present world not apart from and that it was absolutely vital that as he says we should all be transformed by the renewing of the mind and it's this renewing of the mind that he's on about all the time and i think today since you put it like that So many Christians assume, if they think about it at all, that being a Christian means learning a few doctrines, discovering how you're supposed to behave, and getting on with it, saying your prayers, and that's about it. But it seems to take place within the framework of ongoing life as it is, so that religion just becomes, your religion just becomes a kind of a special hobby, if you like. You've got to uh, study a bit of this and learn a bit of that. Um, But for Paul, it's an entire new way of life which comes from the heart and the mind, into the life, corporate as well as individual. And so I think nothing could be more relevant for the church today. We, we, we may say we believe in unity and holiness, but the modern churches are not good at either of those things. And I think often that's because we haven't taken seriously Paul's challenge to have the mind of Christ, to be transformed by having our minds renewed.
0: Right. And that term holiness that you focus on a good deal in the opening chapter of your book, is a term that at least in North America so often gets associated with certain prohibitions, certain acts of abstinence. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what that term holiness means, both as as it comes down to us from the Hebrew text, but also as Paul grabs hold of it and recasts it in light of Christ.
1: Right, right. Well, I use the word holiness like I use the word unity as a shorthand to sum up several connected things that Paul says. And so we need to unpack it a bit. Obviously, holiness is a biblical concept. It's a Pauline concept. And the word holy itself goes back to a Hebrew word, which has to do with the way in which God is utterly set apart from anything that reeks of death or uncleanness or corruption or decay and and so that's why the ancient Hebrews are given a sacrificial cult to remind them that if they are to approach God or if God is to approach them, this is not just a pally, chummy sort of thing oh yes, God isn't that good, but that actually we're dealing with one who is utterly pure uh, in a sense which, again it's hard for us, for the reasons you mentioned even to get the word pure right, because people flatten that out into two or three little prohibitions. But this is to do with God the creator being the source of all life and all joy and all beauty and all power and the way in which we and our world have uh, colluded with forces of decay and evil and rebellion, which which actually belittle us and turn us into less than we're meant to be. And so for Paul, The idea of holiness is about becoming genuinely human, and he sees Jesus as the true human being. He says he is the image of the invisible God, and of course, that goes back to the creation story with humans made in God's image, he says, Jesus is the ultimate image, and our Uh, longing and our calling is to be renewed in knowledge. knowledge, he says again, according to the image of the Creator. In other words, we are to become genuine human beings. And Paul would say, that because we have lived so long in collusion with corruption and sin and decay and death, uh, we've got kind of used to that, and we think that that is normal human existence. Then he's constantly saying, no, it isn't. There is a different way to be human, and it's, it's, it's not an upside-down way. It's actually the right way up. We're all the ones, we're the ones that are all living upside-down. And mm-hmm. that Jesus is both the means and the model for this kind of renewed human life. So I- instead of a bunch of prohibitions, it's actually... Um, All the things which he says go to make up a genuinely human life, like kindness and forgiveness and and, and gentleness and self-control and what he calls the fruit of the spirit. Um, and compassion and patience and things like that and uh, of course when you meet people who exhibit those things it's great, these are good people to be around they're not people who are always frowning at you and telling you you're, you're naughty and wicked I mean if you mm. ask them they might let you in on that little secret but, but basically these are these are life enhancing qualities and the, the difficulties come when we have all as a culture and as individuals bought into ways of thinking and behaving which we think maybe momentarily life enhancing like if we rob a bank or fiddle our tax or 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 go off with someone else's spouse or whatever it may be hugely exciting at the time but actually every novel and every play every poem that we read tells us sorry this is a dead end street Um, Mm -hmm. just as the book of Proverbs said "That's that's the way of death and so Paul it's all about life and death Jesus is the one who is alive who is living with a genuinely human existence and holiness is being conformed to the image
0: of god's son well one of the things that you return to uh early in your book and really throughout the book but in the first chapter you formulate it in a very helpful manner you say that paul's writing is from the jews for the nations against false gods now it strikes me that when you you know formulate those very memorable phrases you're probably countering certain tendencies in new testament studies and in christianity more broadly what sorts of tendencies need to hear that Paul is from the Jews for the nations against the false gods?
1: Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's good. I'm glad you pulled that out because, because that, that is really crucial. Um, take the from the Jews bit first. Um, Paul is a Jew. He writes as a Jew. He thinks as a Jew. Um, and the idea of a Messiah and the idea of God sending the creator God sending his spirit to renew his people and renew the world. These are deeply Jewish ideas rooted in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul is retrieving them with excitement because he believes that these things are not just long-range future promises, but they've actually come true in Jesus and in this extraordinary experience that he calls the Holy Spirit, um, which which Christians share this sense of suddenly being blown along in a new direction by, by by a new wind, a new energy. And so, uh, Paul, uh, uh, until, say, the 1950s and 1960s, the majority of New Testament scholars in Britain and America and Germany, which Mm -hmm. is where a whole lot of biblical scholarship is done, by no means the only places. the Third World and the Latin American world have got a lot of theology, but the debates have tended to go on in Britain and America and Germany. And until the 50s and 60s, most scholars were assuming that because of justification by faith without the law, Paul's whole theology... theology was not Jewish at all, that Judaism was something he was rejecting and saying, uh, no, we've got to look elsewhere. Uh, Jesus leads us away from all that. And so we then draw on themes from the pagan world, from the Caesar cult or from Gnosticism or whatever it may be. And the whole sweep of thought in scholarship since then has been to say, no, Paul was a Jew and he stayed a Jew. But of course, he's a Jew who's rethought Everything around Jesus. So the question is, what exactly then does that rethinking mean? And in my own work, I've tried to say um, that, that this from the Jews thing means there is one God, one people of God, one future for God's world. All those great Jewish affirmations Paul totally agrees with, but he now sees them through the lens of Jesus. And that's really Important Because then what happens is if you believe with Paul that in the cross and resurrection, Jesus was the means whereby the living God won some kind of a victory over the powers of death and hell and sin and all the rest of it, all the dark forces that swirl around our world and destroy things and make our lives miserable, then it means that the nations, which up until that point have been in the power of Uh, these dark powers um, outside Israel, that those powers have been broken so that the nations can come and join God's people. And so for Paul, the idea of the victory on the cross means directly now we can have the Gentile mission. This is for the nations, and they have to be told these idols that you worshipped are just dumb, lifeless things, and you can turn from them them and serve a living and true God so that it's for the nations telling them about Mm -hmm. the God of Israel. Who's now made himself known in and as Jesus. And I, I stress, this is a deeply Jewish message. Psalm 2, one of the great messianic psalms, says of the Messiah that God is giving him the nations as his inheritance, the uttermost mm-hmm. parts of the world as his possession. And so you don't have to stop being a Jewish thinker in order to believe in a messianic message for the world. This is what the Old Testament constantly comes back to.
0: Right, and sliding over from the Kethubim back to the Nevi'im, you know, the themes that you just outlined, I mean, are, are deeply Isianic themes as well,
1: you know. Oh, absolutely. The, ke- the coming I- of the, the- nations. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, Isaiah and the Psalms are full of all that.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I've seen you and also Richard Hayes, along with Bart Ehrman, which honestly surprised me a little bit, say in your respective recent books that Paul's high Christology is not his innovation, but an inheritance from believers before him. Now I know full well that when you write scholarship, you have to counter the bad ideas that recent popular books force you to confront. But why do you think has the low to high progression in Christology proven so durable a bad idea?
1: That, that's a very interesting question. I think deep within European 19th century culture, there was this idea that early Christianity developed rather slowly it started off as a jewish thing and therefore people assumed it must have had a low view of jesus because they would say well the jews were monotheists so they couldn't think of jesus as in some sense god so that it's only gradually as the gospel moves out into the wider world that people can start thinking of the divinity of jesus and of course this is on the assumption that you're looking at a continuum all the way into the third and fourth and fifth centuries with the great councils and creeds and so on Mm -hmm. And so, people then say, well, after all, if Paul did think Jesus was divine, this must have been hugely controversial, and so no wonder there was trouble, and so on. And I want to say, um, actually, even though that's a comprehensible picture, and it goes with a kind of a 19th century ideology of a steady development, a gradual progress, it really doesn't fit, historically, with the evidence. Again and again, Paul says in his letters, you're in a model about this or that or the other. Let me help you sort it out. Or how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And he writes a whole chapter about that. We never get anywhere in his letters any hint that some people are saying that Jesus is not, in fact, uh, the Son of God, who's been sent from God, and who embodies the love of God, I mean, Paul has a very high Christology to use that jargon. And my point has been that despite the impression one might get, in fact, it looks as though this is not controversial among his churches. Um, Mm -hmm. But the point is, he he hasn't moved an inch away from Jewish monotheism. Um, This is difficult for many people to grasp today. I have a correspondent who emails me all the time and says, uh, surely, 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 that both Jesus and Paul just believed in the one God, and Jesus himself wasn't part of that one God, and this idea of the Trinity is a much later invention. And I come back again and again, and I say, look, I'm sorry. In Galatians 4, 1 to 7, and I think Galatians is the earliest of Paul's letters, and even if it isn't, it's quite early. You know, it's Mm -hmm. within 25 years of the crucifixion. Um, Paul says there is this one God over against the idols, but this God has made himself known as the God who sends the Son and the God who sends the Spirit of the Son. And Paul says, now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to idols? And so he's using the monotheistic language, the monotheistic narrative of the Exodus, which is underneath that, and he's finding Jesus and the Spirit inside that narrative, not bolted on from the outside. That is revolutionary, but it looks as though the revolution was already well-established before Paul ever wrote a letter.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the fun things about reading recent books from people I've been reading for 15 years, and you're one of those people whose books I've been reading for quite some time, is that you come back and remind me of why I find your project so compelling. And one of those places in this book is when you lay out in detail a counter-argument both against those who make messianic expectation entirely an ex post facto imposition on Jesus, and also those who make the messianic expectation entirely too easy, basically a a jigsaw puzzle you can put together from the Old Testament. Right. Tell us a little bit about Paul's Jesus and the ways that he meets and the ways that he disrupts what first century Jews expected.
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. Um it, it's interesting because in older Jewish writings and in many to the many Jewish writings to this day the word goes like this that um, uh, pre-Christian Jews never thought of a divine Messiah. That would have been a complete category mistake. Therefore, this must be something which wasn't in Jesus' mind and perhaps wasn't in Paul's mind either, but is wished back onto them by later dogmatic theologians borrowing from Greek categories. Now, there's a very recent book by Danny Boyarin in... in, um, Um, uh, Berkeley, California, is a great rabbinic scholar and scholar of early Judaism and Christianity. And Danny argues more or less the exact opposite, that in fact from the book of Daniel at least onwards and into the scrolls and some of the apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, there are strands within Jewish expectation which do imagine a messianic figure who turns out to be sharing the throne of God. That's one interpretation of Daniel 7 and so on. So that in the first position, um, you get Jewish scholars saying all the central doctrines of Christianity are non-Jewish and they are cobbled together out of later Gentile ideas. And now you have a Jewish scholar saying, actually, all the great ideas in Christianity were there in Judaism already, but all the Christians did was to pin them on Jesus. Now, I don't actually believe that either of those is quite right. I think what happened was that there, there was no... Um, Nobody was walking around saying, well, soon there'll be a Messiah, and of course he'll be the incarnate Son of God. Uh, I just don't see any evidence that they were saying that. But when when Jesus happened, if I can put it like that, Mm And when Jesus died and was raised and was exalted and then the Spirit came upon his followers and upon others like Paul, they then quickly started to read their scriptures in new ways, just like Qumran had done after their experience. They started to read scriptures in new ways, and it's, it's mm-hmm. something that characteristically in the Jewish world happens when there's been some great event. People go back to the Bible and say, hey, there was this going on and we never saw it before. Um, and so I think what's what's happened then is that um, the 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 idea of Jesus himself compels fresh readings of Isaiah, of Genesis, of Deuteronomy, of the Psalms, of Malachi, and what we can see in the New Testament is Paul and others uh, saying new things which were not anticipated before, but which they are convinced. In fact, draw out a meaning from scripture which had not been seen before, but now they realize it had been there all along. So that it's a very delicate balancing act. That uh, it looks, I mean, take um, Romans 1 3 and 4, that Jesus was descended from the seed of David according to the flesh and designated, declared to be Son of God in power according to the resurrection of the dead. Now, there's no text that i know in ancient judaism which says that when the messiah comes he will be raised from the dead and that will prove that he's the son of god but what we have is a text like second samuel 7 where god says to david i will raise up your seed after you who will sit on your throne mm-hmm. and Uh, and I will be his father and he will be my son. Now the Hebrew of that, I will raise up your seed, is which is just, I will bring him into being or I will establish him or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in the Septuagint, it's which already by itself needn't mean resurrection, but when early Christians read that, you can imagine, they'd say, there it is. I will resurrect your seed and he will be my son I will be his father. So they say, "Oh my goodness, we never saw it before, but now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, having been crucified as a messianic pretender, then all this is coming true in ways that we'd never previously imagined, but which we now see make a great deal of sense." So I think that's the kind of process that they're going through all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And and just to be irreverent and probably off target for a moment, I mean, I the way you just described it reminds me of the way that Herodotus treats some of the oracles from Delphi, uh, the people initially receive it one way and then events occur, and yeah, then they yeah. realize that it always meant the other thing all along. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, quite, quite. Uh, if you do this, you will destroy a great nation. And even, yes, indeed. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it turns out to be his own. Um, no, quite, quite. And And I mean sometimes the Old Testament is referred to as the oracles of God, and I Mm -hmm. think you can see in Qumran that there's a sense that Scripture is hugely important, but often hugely mysterious, and so you need fresh help, and of course that's exactly what Luke 24 says happened on the road to Emmaus, and then in the upper room, that the risen Jesus says to his followers, you didn't get it, did you? Let me tell you what the Scriptures are all about. It says he began with Moses and all the prophets and went right through interpreting all the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. And it's as though until he had died and been raised, you would never have imagined that something like that was going to be the climax of the Israel-shaped plan. But that—that that is what the whole New Testament, not just Paul, is all about.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I want you to tell us a little bit about the movement in the guild of New Testament scholars from the progressive post-religious Paul of the 19th century to the Apocalyptic Paul of the 20th century. How does your interpretive project stand relative to both of those pictures of Paul?
1: Oh goodness, this this could be about two hours of, of <laughs> off the top. So let me try and 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 uh, and slow. No, uh, speed it up. Um, uh, by the way, I'm getting a little squeak on this phone. Are you getting a little squeak?
0: Uh, I'm getting a couple moments of cutting out, but I, it, it shouldn't be too, it shouldn't be enough to ruin the podcast. Okay,
1: good, good. Well, apologies to anyone listening if it little squeaks because it may just be the weather out something. I'm not sure. Um, okay, I mean there are lots of different interpretations of Paul all the time in the 19th and the 20th century. And as historians of Pauline scholarship, all we can do is highlight some key features that seem to have been particularly influential. And I have another book just out called Paul and His Recent Interpreters in which I've tried to do just that. So in in the 19th century, often people saw uh, Paul, or at least bits of Paul, as signaling this new way of, of doing uh, loyalty to God, or something, leaving behind the religiosity of the Jews and going for a kind of genial faith instead. And so you get 19th century liberal interpretations of a Lutheran justification by faith. And in that context, apocalyptic is almost a dirty word because apocalyptic means something dark and mysterious and frightening and uh, um, dualistic and negative, so on. Then what happened, of course, was this odd hundred years we call the 20th century, when all kinds of dark and dangerous and dualistic things happened all over Europe and in a measure around other bits of the world as well. And emerging from that in the 1950s, we have Ernst Käsemann one of the greatest German scholars of the mid-century, um, saying, actually, apocalyptic is the mother of Christian theology. And by that, he seems to have meant two things. First, that the early Christians lived on the imminent hope that any minute now, Jesus was coming back and the world would end and everything would be different. Um, And also he meant that the gospel isn't just about you uh, doing an act of faith, which means that your religious interiority now feels better before, but it's actually about the cosmic powers, the great power structures of the universe which are being decisively confronted with the news of the kingdom of God and Kayserman believed that this message had political relevance to the 20th as well as to the 1st century Um, so uh, Kayserman kind of re-inhabited and re-pristinated apocalyptic as a good thing because it was what we needed towards the end of the 20th century having seen all the horrors that had gone on what's happened since then is that uh at least six, quite possibly ten or a dozen different meanings of the word apocalyptic on offer in current Pauline interpretation, never mind interpretation of ancient Judaism, never mind interpreting Jesus in the Gospels, simply in Paul. And uh, there's one which is very fashionable in parts of America at the moment, associated with the late great scholar J. Louis Martin and his commentary on Galatians, and with others who followed Martin, um, which is all about, uh, again, God defeating the powers but this time unlike Kazeman, for whom that was a future thing this is about God defeating the powers on the cross so that the gospel isn't just about how you can go to heaven it's about the worldwide cosmic thing of, of God being in charge and I want to say yes the gospel is about that but to label that apocalyptic is very confusing because that's actually not how first century Jewish apocalyptic works and that's what Paul was into And the apocalyptic in first-century Judaism is about the use of particular kinds of stories and visions and writings to talk about actual real-world events, political events, if you like, and to invest them with their theological meaning. And it's very difficult to get that across in the present climate. I've been doing some more writing about this just recently. and. Uh, But but what it says to us, um, to try to make something positive out of all of that, is that if we think that Paul's message is simply about you and me and how you and I can be justified by faith and how you and I can have our sins forgiven, I want to say, yes, it is about that, but it's about that because it's about the victory which was won on the cross, which makes all that now possible. So that we've got, I think we've got to integrate all the strands of Pauline exposition and theology, not just Apocalypse apocalyptic and beware of shrunken views of what apocalyptic is which are prevalent not only in the one i've described but actually in several of the other views on offer that's about as short as i can do it and i hope it isn't mm-hmm. too confusing but um in this book of course i think it's chapter three of this book isn't it um th- there is there is a, a brief exposition of the whole idea of apocalyptic in contemporary uh, pauline scholarship and engaging with that a bit mm-hmm. well
0: and I, I think that the tension that You've done so well, you know, really over all your books, and it it persists in this book. The tension that you've done so well to maintain is that apocalyptic both refers to the real world that we inhabit, and it also insists on a spiritual dimension to that real world we inhabit. And it seems like so many want to do one of those to the exclusion of the other, that it's either science fiction or it is political commentary, But it couldn't possibly be both.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, uh, you're right that that many people think of it as science fiction, that this is all about the end of the world and so on. Mm -hmm. um, A lovely quote from my friend John Barton, recently retired as professor of Old Testament in Oxford, who once said in a lecture that, if we read Isaiah saying the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven, we know that the next line is not going to be that the rest of the country will have scattered showers and sunny intervals. In other words, (laughs) this is not meant to be uh, a cosmic weather forecast, that that if you look at Isaiah 13, this sort of language is about the fall of Babylon, that Mm -hmm. if you live in the world where Babylon is about to fall, then this is like the Twin Towers on 9-11 plus about five other events of the same magnitude all going on at once, you can't just say, wow, that was a terrible day at the office. You know, you, you have to say something poetic, something which invests these terrible events with their theological significance. that here's the trick, and I'm still puzzling over how to say this, that in the ancient Jewish world, they really did believe that in principle at least, heaven and earth were not a long way away from each other. In our modern Western world, we are all brought up basically to be Epicureans or at least deists. That is to say that God and the world or God's space and our space are huge distances apart and they don't overlap or interlock. So that if you try to say they do, you end up with an odd sort of supernatural invasion or something like the Spaceman or something like that. And I want to say no, Ancient Jewish and early Christian apocalyptic does not live in that dualistic atmosphere. That's why it's so ironic that it's often thought of as dualistic. It's precisely not. It's we who are the dualists. Apocalyptic is a language game designed to express a complexly integrated world in which heaven and earth are impinging on one another, and so that you can't read off um, heavenly results from earthly events, but if you know the secret, and in the New Testament the secret is Jesus himself, then you can see in a measure what God is up to in events like his death and resurrection, and like the fall of Jerusalem, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, given all of those things, culturally speaking, what do you make of the recent, uh, I'll say resurgence of the so-called apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic in cinema uh you know i mean mad max was a pretty enormous hit this year uh everyone i know is talking about the walking dead what do you think it says about our historical moment that we are fascinated with grand cataclysmic events that end the world as we know it
1: Interesting, interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm afraid I'm not a cinema buff, I haven't seen either of the movies you mentioned Okay (laughs) Uh, The the only movie I've seen recently was when I was in charge of my six-year-old grandson recently and he wanted to go and see Transylvania Hotel 2 So (laughs) I sat through uh, a kiddie vampire movie for an hour and a half which he absolutely loved every minute of, it's basically monsters and car chases but with a few fangs as well Um, and so my, my recent movie experience is probably not a good one to judge from, but um, I know the kind of thing that you mean and I think Obviously, it goes in a way with the sense, particularly in America, that we live in dangerous and disturbing times, and with mm-hmm. events like 9-11 having happened, and with sudden events like whether it's Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans being underwater or that kind of thing, there's always a sense, almost as though in Western culture in general and in America in particular, we know that we are doing so well in terms of world history. You know, there is never before. In a generation which lives so long, which can cure so many diseases, which can make so many interesting electronic gadgets. You know, we, we are at the pinnacle of of civilization from some points of view, but we sense in our bones that there's a dark side to this, that there's a cost to it. And it's maybe like in the Greek mythology, and, you know, what we're talking about is why mythologies attract. And in the Greek mythology, Icarus, who flies too close to the sun and is is, uh, the wax that's holding his, his artificial wings on, melts and he crashes to earth. And it's almost as though in Western civilization, we have a sense of we really can't believe we're this high up, we've done so well and that we have these nightmares therefore which we turn into movies and novels and things about suddenly crashing and burning, literally crashing and burning mm-hmm. and I think that's that's part of it. It's also and I think this is more American phenomenon than European one that the dualism of the enlightenment this split level world where God is upstairs and we're downstairs and yet the rumor has not gone away. He may still be around so that, that then we think that the only way he could be around is if he's Suddenly invades, and then, if he were to invade, then my goodness, bad things would happen because we'd all be in trouble and, and I think that sort of mythology has a much more powerful hold on the American imagination than it does certainly on the British. Um, mm-hmm. but to go any further, you'd probably need a a movie expert and B, a social <laughs> psychologist, and I am neither
0: <laughs> well it's interesting though because the way you just described it is part of what makes it difficult to teach uh, the apocalypse you know in the New Testament. Uh, in church settings, because people want to read it as uh, a text of terror to scare people from privileged backgrounds into behaving yeah, rather okay. than being a text of comfort that says that the powers that are already terrorizing you yeah. are not permanent. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was greatly comforted this week because I was doing an event in a church in the Midlands in Britain, and the pastor of the church, who I had not met before, when he was introduced to me, he said, by the way, you may like to know we've just done a two-year study course on the book of Revelation, and we've used your little book, Revelation for Everyone, as the, the, the key text to help us through. So I mm-hmm. thought, oh my goodness, I hope I didn't mislead you. He said, no, it was wonderful. We had a great time. Well, good, good. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's been exciting. <laughs> (laughs)
0: Well, one reality that that never really occurred to me in these terms until I read it in this book is that Christianity was not by any means the only supersessionist movement in first century Judaism. Uh, With that fact in place, well, first of all, talk to us about that fact. But then with that in place, how can Christians in the 21st century take that reality seriously and pay heed to the horrors of the Holocaust at the same time? And what does it look like for Israel to be represented, not replaced, by the Messiah?
1: Yeah, 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 great question. Um, Let me first say as clearly as I can that this word, supersessionist, has done a great deal of damage. I have continued to use it, trippicot. It is a word which occurs in these discussions, and to avoid it might just be confusing. But people now sometimes use it to describe almost any Christian claim at all, as though any claim for any special status for Jesus is automatically anti-Jewish. And indeed, some writers have said that, that the Christian claims about Jesus um, are, are just inherently anti-Jewish. And of course, as we know, over the last 500 years, over the last 1,000 or more years, there have been many, many parts of so-called Christian civilization in Russia, in Germany, in Britain, in America too, mm-hmm. which have have just been content to be anti-Jewish and to imply that there's something bad about being a Jew or whatever it is, uh, or much, much worse, of course. And let me also say that I kind of grew up under the shadow of the Holocaust, and my earliest awareness of some modern political issues was about the foundation of the State of Israel uh, as a result of Jews needing a homeland after the Second World War, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, that's kind of the way I came in was an awareness of that and a horror of what had happened and a determination um, to, to, to make sure that whatever one did, it wouldn't be anything like that direction. I say that because people have accused me inevitably of being either anti-Jewish or supersessionist or whatever. And I want to rebut that pretty fiercely, except in the sense that you rightly pick up that in the first century, there were lots and lots of Jewish movements, each saying, we are the movement through whom our one God is renewing the covenant with Israel, mm. is going to bring victory, is launching his great plan, is fulfilling scripture, whatever. You get it um, 200 years before the time of Jesus with the Maccabean Christ. It's where they tell the story of what they've done as the great renewal movement. Lots of people are dissatisfied with that, so the faculties are right and they're saying, no, this is how God wants his Israel to be. You have to keep Torah like this. Simultaneously, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, we presume the SC they have their own interpretation. Each one of these is saying this is the way, and not what that other down the road are doing. And- uh, maybe the see who ran the temple were saying the same thing. We don't have any surviving literature, which we can be sure is from them, so we're not quite sure. But then the Messianic movements during the first century, and there were plenty of Messianic and prophetic movements from roughly about um, 50 B.C. to roughly 150 A.D., each one of those movements was saying this is the way God is acting, and if you get in line then you're out of line and even then in 200 AD roughly the Mishnah is written by Judah Hanasi, Judah the prince um, and his colleagues and the Mishnah, the codification of Jewish law is saying this is the center of Judaism, this is what it looks like so that there is a sense in which every single one of those movements is in that sense supersessionist, it's saying this is what the fulfillment of the covenant looks like, not all those other things and now here's the thing We in the West have turned our view of Christianity and Judaism into religions, and indeed even the suffix "-ism," as in Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism, is Mm -hmm. really a 19th-century uh, an essentialization of of something which is much more complex and, and they didn't think of themselves as religions by going by these names. They were families, they were people, they were worldviews, they were movements and the critical thing is when we're looking at first century Judaism and first century Christianity the Christianity is not a religion over against Judaism. It claims to be what you might call eschatological messianism. In other words finally, God has sent the Messiah. They know it's a controversial claim. Of course they do. But they make it because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so it isn't about saying we have compared Christianity and Judaism, and we have decided that our Christianity is a better sort of religion than your sort, and maybe this sort will make you more holy or get you to heaven quicker or something. It's absolutely nothing to do with that. It's saying Jesus is Israel's Messiah and therefore it is the, the true Lord. Now that claim is controversial and in the sense that I've described it can be called supersessionist, but that has nothing what to do with the that people rightly get very worried about and all, including sadly accusing me sometimes.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I mean, what I gathered from your book and also from our conversation here is that in some ways, I mean, if you look at texts again, I keep returning to Isaiah, yeah. uh, you get a sense that the the remnant that returns, in a way, sort of, you know, writes the idea of supersession into the very code, if you will, of what's going to come after Isaiah.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- th- there are all sorts of of tricky questions there. I, mm-hmm. I am not a, an Isaiah specialist. I, I love the book of Isaiah, but I am not. Uh, uh, an Old Testament historian. So um, the question of how Isaiah is being put together and then how it's being read in the centuries between its Mm. compilation and the time of Jesus, those are very, very difficult and complicated questions. But yes, the way in which in Second Temple Judaism, the idea of the remnant is being picked up. Um, is, of course, in itself controversial, as you see when some people come back from Babylon and the Samaritans, for instance, don't want them back. And then there are great controversies as to who really are the genuinely returned from exile people. It's rather like our sad controversies in Europe at the moment, as to which refugees count as migrants and which count as genuine refugees. You know, and so which ones do we send back and which ones do we do we help? Um, which is mm-hmm. a horrible question to have to face. But there's a sort of sense in the Second Temple period. How do we know where the true people of God actually are to be found? How can we identify them? Um, and that that went on for centuries. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I know this can't be the first time someone has asked you to map out the common ground you share with John Calvin, but I'm going to ask nonetheless, why do you and the Reformer of Geneva situate justification as a part of, but not coterminous with, life in Christ?
1: Oh, um, the short answer to that is uh, we do that because that's what Paul does. There are three (laughs) passages in Paul's letters, in Romans 3.24, in Galatians 2.17, and in Philippians 3.9, where he talks about being justified in Christ. And uh, Albert Schweitzer was quite right that the notion of justification, which is a very precise and sharp instrument for Paul to make a particular point, that is nested within the larger idea of being in the Messiah. And so for Paul, um, and I think Calvin saw this exactly, uh, that for Paul, the great thing that has happened is that in Christ, God has done the new thing that he promised. He has put sin to death. He has launched the new life, the new world, uh, the new way of being. And so if you're going to share in that, then you need to be in Christ, which happens by grace through faith in baptism um, and has to issue in all the things it issues in. But the point is, if you are then in Christ, you are declared to be in the right, that is your sins are forgiven, you are declared to be a a member of God's covenant family. Now, so that justification, that declaration happens within the larger picture, the larger story of what God has done. You see, often this has been played out in terms of how you read Romans. And people say, well, Romans 1 to 4 is about justification. Romans 5 to 8 is about being in Christ. But that's actually wrong. If you look carefully at Romans 1 to 4, and particularly, at, as I said, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, you will see that there justification takes place in Christ. And likewise, if you look at Romans 5 to 8, not least at the climax of chapter 8, you'll see that that isn't just about being in Christ, it's about final justification anticipated in the present on the basis of faith, which is itself the result of the Spirit's work. Now, I think that everything I've just said in the last minute, John Calvin would say, yes, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from Calvin when I was much younger. I studied Calvin and Luther as a special subject when I was doing a theology degree in Oxford about a million years ago, so it seems now. Um, (laughs) However, I am not sure that Calvin understood Uh, fully the way in which the story of Israel comes to its climax in Jesus. I think for him, for instance, exile and restoration become a metaphor a metaphor which is a very fruitful metaphor because of course Calvin was himself an exile from his native France in Geneva so Mm. I don't think he sees this idea of a continuing exile from the time of Babylon onwards uh, an exile which well you can say it's metaphorical but what it means is that foreigners are ruling over you and that God's ultimate redeeming purposes have not yet happened and part of the reason for that is that in the Reformation They are so keen on the break with Rome that they don't want a continuous story. They want a story with a break in it. So you have the Old Testament, and then there's a kind of a break, and something totally new happens, and the Old Testament is then reduced to being um, simply a book of prophecies. Now, that's oversimplifying because Calvin, I think, would dispute that as well. But I do think that—and I'm here agreeing with Karl Barth that the Reformers never quite sorted out their eschatology, and I think that's because— It's taken a lot of research on the Jewish world at the time for us really to have our noses rubbed in the fact that many, many Jews in the first century were telling the story of Israel as a continuous story going forward, and that the gospel writers and Paul are telling the same story, only they say that this story has come to its fruition in the explosive apocalyptic cataclysmic events concerning Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I would say is this, Uh, when I was very young and thinking about what it might mean to make a life out of being a theologian and a biblical scholar, I remember a good friend who was a Calvin scholar saying to me, the thing that Calvin did was that he day by day read his Bible in Hebrew and Greek as carefully as he could, as prayerfully as he could, and he was constantly reading and studying the text to find fresh light to see how it all fitted together, to be able to preach and teach from it. And I remember I almost, I can't tell you the date, but I have a, 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 a strong memory of where I was when this friend said, said that to me. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good agenda. And mm-hmm. I have tried for the last 45 years or so to do exactly that, to read the scriptures for all their worth, to search for new things as well as simply um, restating the old things. And particularly to try to do so prayerfully and in the service of the church. And my hope is that John Calvin would say that even if I disagree with him on content, I'm actually following his theological method.
0: Very good. I've got a follow-up question for that, because in your conversations about justification, I get a sense that you're trying to retrieve some of the old sense of Mishpat, the the Hebraic notion of justice uh, in the face of sort of a Roman conception of Eustace, you know, the the codification of the laws and whether or not you have broken those laws, yeah. Yeah. do you yeah. think that well, do you think that there are any uh, fruit to be harvested from bringing into conversation with those two a sort of Greek Platonic notion of dikaiosune, like we would find in in Plato's dialogues? Do you think that that's Goodness. an influence on Paul in the same way that? You know other other Greek notions of Ecclesia, for instance, seem to be influential there
1: yeah um, this is a really tricky one because the question of which Greek words, concepts, thought forms are influencing Paul mm-hmm. remains a real teaser. And uh, in a recent article discussing some of my work, Greg Sterling from Yale Divinity School has quite rightly said that though I have tried to locate Paul in relation to stoicism particularly, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't say Paul's a Stoic far from it, but I say he's in implicit conversation with it, that I should also have brought him into implicit conversation with middle Platonism, mm-hmm. not that Paul and Plutarch were contemporaries, but that we might actually learn a lot by bringing them together. That's something I would love to do, and given another year or two of nothing else to do, that will be an extremely <laughs> exciting project. However, however, it seems to me that the crucial passages where Paul talks about dikai and mm. obviously this is Romans um, and bits of Galatians and uh, one bit of Philippians, um, particularly other yeah, one or two other passages, but basically those, um, then the obvious antecedents are in Isaiah and the Psalms and bits in Deuteronomy and Genesis but Isaiah and the Psalms particularly and there we can see Paul retrieving those prophecies of God's dikaiosune God's righteousness justice um, etc now uh, and as i've said in one or two places our trouble here is that the word dikaiosune in greek and even its its normal hebrew original uh, tzedakah Mm-hmm. Um, these are huge words which are like great ocean-going ships, cargo ships, which have stopped in a dozen different ports and taken on board a lot of baggage from here and there and somewhere else. And we do not have, in English or German or French, in today's world, any words which can contain anything like all the baggage that Tikau or Tzedakah can contain. Mm-hmm. So we have to paraphrase. And that's why in my translation of the New Testament, um, I have often been reduced to paraphrasing some of the key passages in Paul, and I don't myself think, in direct answer to your question, that he is borrowing directly from the Platonic tradition. I think it's highly likely he's aware of it, but mm-hmm. he is basically saying, if it's dikai, as you know you want, go to the Septuagint, and you'll find it takes you back to God's righteousness in Isaiah and mm-hmm. in the Psalms, which is God's covenant faithfulness, and because the covenant is all about putting the world right, it is also a judicial or forensic term, and because of both of those, it is also a moral term. But lining up how covenant and forensic and moral sit in relation to one another, especially when there's a lot of misinformation about at the moment in Christian circles by different people who want to highlight different bits of that. Um, configuration. This is really, really difficult, and we need to take it inch by inch and passage by passage to Mm -hmm. see really where it was all going.
0: Okay. Your discussion of the differences between Paul's letters is fascinating, and I'll admit the the section of your book that most challenged my own reading. So take a moment as as we're heading toward the end here to tell our listeners why they should regard those differences not as marks of internal inconsistency or Even change of ideology over time But rather as 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 you put it in the book As places where a rhetorician Is deliberately choosing his topoi Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: I mean, Paul is clearly faced with very different situations. Even between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, something has happened in quite a short space of time, which means that his whole tone and style is radically different. And instead of cheerfully saying to them, well, you wrote me about this issue and that issue, so let me tell you about this and and, uh, give you a push about that one and a sharp reminder about the other, 1 Corinthians is all quite cheerful. And 2 Corinthians is really... Uh, dark and, and not exactly gloomy, because Paul isn't gloomy, but but he's wrestling with things because it looks as though he's absolutely been kicked in the teeth by some people in the church in Corinth who've written to him and said, hey, Paul, if you, could, if you want to come back here, we're going to have to have a fresh application before we'll even let you in. We need some letters of reference um, for you, which is, like, ridiculous. He is their apostle. It's because of him that they became Christians, and so he's, he's kind of struggling against Uh, this extraordinary misrepresentation and vilification that's clearly happened. And eventually he comes back and teases them, but in a very dark way in chapters 11 and 12. So those are totally different. But take Romans and Galatians. Uh, Many, many people have imagined that Galatians is, as it were, a shorter earlier version of exactly the same argument as Romans, but they're not. They're going in opposite directions, but coming through the same affirmations. Because in Galatians, he's saying, whatever you do, don't get circumcised. You do not have to become a physical Jew in order to belong to the family of Abraham. But in Romans, particularly 9 to 11, the boot is on the other foot because he senses that some of the Gentile Christians in Rome are likely to be saying, oh, the Jews, we're glad we got rid of them from here in Rome and we don't want them back and uh, maybe Christianity did start as a Jewish movement but it's clear that no no we're not going to have any more Jews in it because they're just a nuisance and God's written them off and Paul's saying absolutely not the minute you say that God's likely to write you off thank you very much in other words Galatians is written to warn people against simply rushing into the arms of some version of the Jewish way of life and in Romans he's warning them against a kind of Anti-Jewish thing. So inevitably, those two letters um, are lined up very, very differently. And what he says about the law is different, not that it's incompatible. And in my big book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, I've spent several pages articulating as carefully as I can how Paul's view of the law can be seen as coherent right through all his letters. But um, we only get the full flavor if we're prepared to let each letter be itself rather than just a thin copy of one of the others.
0: Very good. Well, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want to let you have the last word. What would you want our listeners to hear about Paul, the Biblical Studies Guild, the Gospel, a particular epistle, or whatever else as we wrap up here?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, I. I often get faced with with questions like this and i i think i want to say something like this that uh, i go to paul in my mind's eye to paul on the areopagus in athens now i know that um, uh, that's obviously an act It isn't in one of Paul's letters, but as I have worked on Paul over the years, it seems to me that the speech that is there put into Paul's mouth by Luke on the Areopagus is a pretty good summary of what we know about Paul who says in second Corinthians that he takes every thought captive to obey Christ, um, In the Areopagus, he's facing the Stoics, the Epicureans, the academics, quite possibly Middle Platonists, who knows. And in a short space, he's engaging with them. He doesn't say you're all wrong. He doesn't say you're all right. He does warn that the great temples in Athens... Category mistake. Now, these are some of the finest works of architecture that the world has ever seen. I was in Athens not long ago, and again, mind-blowing stuff, even the Temple of Nike, let alone the Parthenon, and he just says, sorry they're a waste of space. The Almighty does not live in houses like that. So this is a pretty rough way to treat the local culture right out of the blocks. But then he quotes their poets, and he's engaging with their ideas, and he's basically saying, well, you Stoics, you're not actually wrong. There are rumors of divinity around everywhere, but um, actually God and the world are not the same thing. And you Epicureans, you're wrong in saying um, that God is a long way away from the world, but you're right in saying that God and the world are, in fact, different. Um, Actually, they're related and then you academics, you say there's not enough evidence to know um, about these things. And up until now, you've been right. But let me tell you, God has fixed a day on which you will sort the whole mess out through a man who's he's appointed and he's raised him from the dead to prove the point. Um, in other words, this is a microcosm of what I see going on in Paul as a missionary theologian, that he is engaged with the culture on the street, in the hall, um, in and around, uh, outside at least the temples, and he is prepared to say, no, this is not the way. Then he's prepared to say, well, there's a bit of something really important there. Now let's put it in this context, and you'll see what it really means. And the reason this is fascinating is not simply as an intellectual exercise in culture history, though it is fascinating at that level, it's because it's a blueprint for what we should be doing... Give me in the about Western four Church minutes. ...as we seek to be witnesses to the gospel in our own contemporary world. We need to understand the philosophies, the worldviews that are out there on our streets, the Areopaguses of our day, and we need to be able to engage them with the gospel rather than simply hurling a couple of dogmas um, over the fence at some of those nasty pagans out there. We we need to understand the culture, and we'll discover that Paul's gospel is easily robust enough for us to be able to engage with every element of contemporary culture and to bring it into the middle of the Christian proclamation and say, "Now God has fixed a day when He's going to sort all this out through the man whom He's raised from the dead." The, the, so the, the message of resurrection, of the resurrection of Jesus, has to come through loud and clear. But it comes through into the world of all those many cultures that. We live in today, and my goodness, our world today needs a lot more of that than it's getting right now.
0: Tom Wright, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles.
1: Thank you, sir. It's been very good to be with you. God bless you and your listeners.
0: Thank you. Thank you, and thank, okay. and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. The Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic, our audio editor is Brit Stack, and I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace. Go in peace, serve the Lord.